airways Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And if you're a typical teenager in Melbourne in the late 60s, you'd sit in your bedroom pretending to do your homework, but in reality, you had your transistor radio, possibly with your earpiece, and it was tuned to one place only. The most frequently, frequently, frequency in the state. Sam Anglesey, welcome to Pilots and thanks for joining us. That's a pleasure, Paul. Nice to be with you. Now, Sam, a career best known in Melbourne, Adelaide and across Tasmania, but for you, the broadcasting started way back in 1963 as a 19-year-old at 6KG in Kalgoorlie, of all places. Who inspired you to choose radio as a career, and how did you land that first job in Kalgoorlie? Well, nobody in particular inspired me. Uh, I just finished the matriculation, or secondary school, and uh, I had a few ideas what I might do after school, but, you know, I wasn't sure. So I thought I'd take a gap year and just uh, do a, take on a job here and there and have a think about it, you know. And uh, I saw an ad in the paper for an announcer at 6 p.m. in Perth. So I thought, oh, that, you know, I'd been in drama a bit at school and uh, I thought I'll give that a go. So I applied for the job, missed out. And then a couple of days later, I got a telegram saying, look, we've got a position at our sister station, 6KG in Kalgoorlie. Would you be interested in that? I said, yeah, because, uh, you know, I figured I was just going to do something for 12 months and then get back to uh, studies, you know. So, uh, yeah, I went to, went to Kalgoorlie for, with the job and I liked it so much. I thought, yeah, this is great. I'll just keep doing it. There was a school teacher once who... Uh, heard me on a quiz show on the radio when I was uh, oh, probably 14, 15. And she said, oh, I heard you on the quiz show last night on the radio. And she said, yeah, it sounded great. You should get into radio. <laughs> so that's about the only anybody has sort of suggested I do that. Now, small tight-knit townships can either embrace or reject newcomers. How were you accepted into Kalgoorlie? Very well. It was great. In fact, you were a bit of a star up there because I don't think they had television by that in Kalgoorlie at that time. So the radio was pretty much the centre of the media. Yeah, so uh, 
off I went. And I went, as a matter of fact, it was pretty stunning for a young bloke. I got off the train and there was a whole mob of people to greet me there and a band playing. And I thought, well, you know, how about this? <laughs> and then I really liked the job. It was so much fun, you know. In fact, well, I, I th- when I first got there, they, uh, whether it was New Year or a special occasion each year, they closed off the main street in Kalgoorlie and had this big night with music and celebration. And they, they always used to have what was called the Mystery Scotchman. So you, they selected a well-known person of the town, sometimes might have been the mayor, and uh, you dress up as a Scotchman, right, with the kilt and the whole spawn and the whole business and a mask on, right? And people had to guess who the mystery Scotchman was each year and entered then entries in a bid. And I was, I was the mystery Scotchman just on arriving, you know? So that was my introduction. I thought, wow. Yeah, wow, indeed. Now, no doubt there was plenty of excitement in landing that first gig, but did you always have ambitions to move to the East Coast to further your career? Yeah, well, I always had in mind that I wanted to go to a capital city, you know, which was, uh, you know, more important and uh, better paid, etc. So the next stop was 3&E in Wangaratta, not quite the capital city gig yet, but one which would have been a big step for a 20-year-old from Perth and a totally different community to Kalgoorlie. What are your best memories of the station there and the people of the northeast of Victoria? Well, the people of the northeast were great, uh, very football orientated. The station was a funny station, actually. The reason I went there, I was in Kalgoorlie and a good mate of mine who was also an on-air guy, John Brown, actually his name was, and he'd got a job at 3 and E. And then he called me up and said, hey, look, they're looking for another guy here. Why don't you send them a tape? So I thought, oh, okay. So, you know, I was ready to do something different. So I sent him the tape and got the job. It was a strange station, though. It had a mix of, like, I, I, sometimes I'd read the news. I did a bilingual program in Italian because a big Italian community up there. And, uh, yeah, that sort of stuff, you know. They called it Dave Delarue's boarding school. Dave Delarue was the manager, and it was a pretty strict place. Like, you weren't allowed to talk in the corridors and stuff like that, right? And uh, I can remember one occasion, being a big football town, I was on the air, and every Saturday afternoon, a bloke had come around to the side door with, the, with the, all the football results, knock on the door or press the button, because you're the only one in the station. I'd go out and get the results. So I went out, got the results, and he shot through. Then I turned around, the door closed on me. So I was locked out of the, and I only had one record playing, you know, like a three or four minute record playing. So Christ, what am I going to do? So, uh, so I picked up a brick, smashed a little hole in the window near the door, reached in and opened the door and got back in there in time. Well, next week, I got a letter from the manager charging me for the bill for breaking the window. Now, Sam, you had a number of different stints at 70X in Launceston, the first being in the mid-60s. EX, as we know, was a home for so many great jocks over the years. What did you learn there, and how much of your time there affected the rest of your career? Well, when I was at 3&E, I got a call from the program manager of 70X, Graham Denmead, his name was. And uh, I was doing a late night show at 3 and E, sort of a 
easy listening format about 10 to 12 at night, you know, Peggy Lee, that sort of stuff. And Graham, the program manager from 70X, offered me a job. He said, oh, I've been listening to you, your show there in the evenings and we want to launch this album show. Would you be interested? So they flew me down there, you know, to have a look around. And so I took the job and uh, did the this album show for a while. And then the guy who did the drive shift left. So they put me into drive. And that was the first time I really came a, in inverted commas, sort of disc jockey, if you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just playing the records and doing my own thing, playing hit songs, you know, you know, top 40, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was really when I sort of became a jock, so to speak. Whereas previous to that, I would have said I was an announcer. Now, one of the other guys on air at the time was Rod Muir, who would become the godfather of FM radio in Australia. Now, Rod had worked in the US prior to his time in Tassie. Did he bring back any certain style or presentation that influenced others on the station? Well, I first uh, met Rod at 7HO in Hobart, actually. When I was working at 70X, I got another offer from 7HO. Funnily enough, the only job I ever really applied for was the first one. The others just people rang me. So, yeah, I got a call from 7HO and said, would you like to come and work for us? Made me an offer. So, yeah, I took the job. And Rod was on the air down at 7HO at the time. He was doing afternoons and I did drive, so I followed him. And uh, we became really good mates and uh, still have very fond memories of Rod. So was there a US style in his presentation that he tried to impart to others? I can't recall. Uh, he, d- he just acted basically like one of the other announcers. He, he, had, mm-hmm. he had no authority as a program manager. So he really didn't offer advice to anybody. You know, we just tweeted one another as a couple of on-air jocks. Okay, Sam, more about your relationship with 70X later. But now let's turn to the big one. Happiness is listening to Happiness is listening to Happiness is listening to The Greater 3UZ So how did you land the 7 to 10pm gig on the most influential radio station in the country with the biggest names in Top 40 Radio? Well, I think Rod might, Rod Muir might have had something to do with that. I, I was at 7HO and uh, I think they may have, the three who said may have contacted Rod and said, hey, you know, is anybody down there that you reckon is any good? And I think he suggested me. So then I got a call from three who said, offered me the gig, and I was off. <laughs> because at that time, you know, everybody thought three who said was the best station to work for, you know, particularly if you wanted to be a disc jockey, you know. Now, we could ask you, Sam, to profile all those great names of the time. However, let's just look at who you followed and who you handed over to. Firstly, what can you tell us about the great Alan Lappin? Lap-Lap. Well, uh, Lap-Lap wasn't really a disc jockey. He was more like a, a, a personality. He, uh, he really had no interest in the music. In fact, I've, I've seen him when he was back announcing a song, picking up the record to look at who it was. <laughs> But he had this charming personality, sort of, he was probably the first to be ocker. He was really Aussie, you know. And, uh, you know, he used to talk about his kids and what he was having for dinner and his wife, Desley, and his next door neighbour, Ted. Very family orientated sort of thing. And he was very likeable. That was his appeal rather than writing the records, so to speak, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas Stan, who came after me, I guess he was a disc jockey, yeah. And uh, a lovely bloke too, top guy, Stan. 
beautiful man. I, I've often seen him. Uh, we're up. Used to drink at the Windsor Hotel and giving the odd bloke a few bucks here and there, you know, to help him out. Had a heart of gold, Stan. And of course, he was great on air. He uh, he got to three years in. Funnily enough, he was at three Ks in, and he was rating pretty well. So three years in, we thought, gee, who's this Stan Rofe guy getting getting ratings? They didn't have a position for him, but they hired him. And I think they only put him on the air for an hour or two hours later in the day, just so they could get him away from 3KZ. And then he established himself in that 10 to 1 slot. Yeah. So how aware were you at the time of the enormous listening audience that you attracted and of the influence that you had over the young people of Melbourne at the time? Yeah, well, it was pretty obvious, really. The, uh, I, think, I think at the time... I'd attracted the biggest uh, youth audience in the history of Melbourne radio, a big youth audience. So I used to get lots of mail and, yeah, a lot of interest. Yeah, yeah. Items such as the 3UZ Top 40 chart were must-have pieces of paper every week, and the station took every opportunity to promote their stars, either through continual advertising or in person on those legendary beach broadcasts. So who used to travel with you on the road, and what were your memories of those summer days with those enormous crowds? I don't remember a lot about it. I think I was just mainly with one of the other on-air guys. But it was a lot of fun, and we drew big crowds, and, you know, it was good fun. One of the highlights each year, of course, was Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds that saw so many great groups of the time emerge and gain national exposure and notoriety, and with you comparing a number of finals. Memories of those days? Oh, very exciting, because all the bands from all over the country gathered there who'd won the, their heats from each state. And, uh, yeah, and, of course, there were huge crowds. They usually had a guest artist too, I think. And, uh, yeah, that was very exciting. I sort of made a good a couple of friends. Uh, I can remember Doug Parkinson and his band won it one year. We became good mates with Doug. He's rest in peace. He passed away recently, I see, like a lot of us are. <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, it was great. Russell Morris became good friends with Russell. Sort of met him through the Battle of the Sounds. Now, Sam, we spoke to Keith Harris about this recently, and as one of Melbourne's top jocks in the late 60s, early 70s, you too would have been affected by the infamous pay-for-play record band dispute that lasted from May until October in 1970. What do you remember about that time, and uh, how did that affect your playlist? Well, there were a lot, of course, uh, records you couldn't play, but what happened was it was a a boon for local artists, uh, a fellow called Ron Tudor, set up Fable Records at that time, and he got local groups to do copies of the hits that we couldn't play. So they started charting. I think, for example, uh, the mixtures in the summertime, that was a number one hit in England for Mungo Jerry, and we couldn't play that. So I think it was the mixtures. They recorded a version, and that became a hit in Australia. So it was good for some of the local bands in a way. Now, Sam, as part of your time at 3UZ, you were flown to the US by Qantas as part of the opening of the Tullamarine Airport. Stevie Winwood traffic, Fillmore West, must have been just a fantastic time to be in San Francisco. It was a fabulous time, Paul. Uh, it was the summer of love and all that in San Francisco. And, uh, yeah, it was the inaugural flight from Tullamarine, the very first international flight. And... Uh, I was lucky to get the gig. It was offered to the uh, manager of the station, Lewis Bennett. 
and he didn't want to go. So uh, I was the whitehead boy at the moment, having pulled off the gratings in the evening. So he gave gave the gig to me. So yeah, we flew uh, with a, all the other people on board the flight were also guests. There were journalists and cartoonists, and uh, yeah, it was we had a carte blanche in San Francisco. We could go anywhere, do what we want to. All expenses paid. Stayed at the Sir Francis Drake Hotel. All expenses paid. Room service. It was great. And we visited all the vineyards there, and uh, like I say, went out to Fillmore and hung out there and watched some of the bands. It was great. Yeah. Speaking of big names, tell us about your dealings with Cretan's Clearwater Revival. So uh, when I was in San Francisco, I spent a day with Cretan's Clearwater Revival. Or the whole band, I went out to the Cosmos factory. That's where they hung out. It was an old factory that they'd done up and had a basketball court in. And that's where they did their recordings too. So I spent a day with the guys. In fact, a couple of them went trail biking through San Francisco on, a couple, on trail bikes. And if you've been there, San Francisco is a pretty hilly place. And uh, their album, Cosmos Factory, had just been released. So I sat down with them and did a long interview about them their roots, etc., and then went through the album sort of track by track. And I, I made it, when I got back to 3UZ, I made a, a one-hour special out of it. And that was the very first in Top 40 Radio that they broke from the format and had an hour special. So the station sold that to stations right around the country, the one-hour special. And so that was so successful for the station that they said, well, well let's do some more of these. So that ended up with me sitting down with a number of bigger acts and doing the same thing, interview in depth, playing their music, and a whole hour of it, you know? Yeah, I can remember being with uh, oh, Roy Orbison, Tom Jones, Helen Reddy. We did an hour special with Helen. So that was the very first one-hour special for Top 40 Radio. So the association with 3UZ ended at around 1972. Any particular reason for the departure or was it just time to go? Yeah, I suppose it was time. I guess I'd been in radio for about 10 years then. And I was thinking, gee, there must be a bit more to life than just doing this. And uh, I, I wanted to go to the country. So I went farming in the early 70s, in the 70s, yeah, on a, a farm in uh, Tasmania, 300-acre farm. And uh, I loved that too, yeah. You know, I wanted to change. Instead of uh, just being in studios all the time, drinking and partying at all these functions you had to go to, you know, I thought I'd get away from it all. Now, 5AD in Adelaide was another ratings bonanza for you. Afternoons, after school, on AD Music, commanding another enormous slice of the audience in the three to six afternoon shift. Did the Sam Anglesey style change, or was it just more of the same? Pretty much more of the same. I, uh, when I was farming towards the end of it there, I, uh, the manager at 70X said, why don't you come in and work for us again? So I did. I, I went in there and I did the drive for them. And through that... I got another call from uh, 5AD to offer me the gig over there. 
the station was pretty good about it. In fact, they contacted the manager of the station to say to tell him that they were going to offer me a job first. And he came up and told me they're going to ring me and offer you a job, Sam. So, yeah. So I thought, oh, that's good. Good of you to let me know. So that, that was very successful, actually, the 5AD. I remember it well. I, I, I went there to do the drive shift. The station was rating, you know, had Baz and Pilko in the morning and, you know, huge ratings. But they fell away in the drive shift. They were fourth in drive. So unfortunately for the bloke doing the gig, he, uh, they sacked him and hired me. And uh, without blowing my trumpet, I started the day of the ratings and two months later, the ratings came out uh, and it was number one. So it went from four to one in two months. Funny thing about that, Bob Francis, who was the manager, Fatty Francis, as he was uh, dearingly known as, so he didn't want to hire me because he thought I was a bit too radical because uh, Fatty, God bless his soul, he's, he's another one's passed on now, was pretty right-wing sort of a bloke. I, you could say he was probably more right-wing than Atla the Hun. And uh, first up, he said, I'm not going to hire that bloke. He wears an earring. In, and when I went to the station, they were all, gee, he's got an earring. I mean, I don't wear it now. That was the 60s, 60s 70s, you know. And uh, they said, oh, gee, this bloke's got an earring. Bob said he'd never hire any bloke that wears an earring. So anyway, the ratings came out, and I can remember Fatty coming to the studio when the ratings came out. I was on air. He said, hey, beauty, we've gone to number one. He said, I don't care how many earrings you wear, mate. We can became good friends too, Bob and I, although we were both politically in opposite sides. We were still good friends. And I had some really fun time. His uh, office was a constant party all day, every day. There was always people up there drinking and partying on, no matter what time of the day it was. Probably almost enough partying, Sam, to send you back to the country. Hey, listen, in radio terms, was there much, if any, difference in the Melbourne market and listening audiences compared to those in Adelaide? Maybe Adelaide was a little more parochial. That's about all, yeah. So there was Baz and Pilko smashing it in breakfast, mornings with Peter Butler, afternoon with yourself, and Dial a Hit hosted by Steve Mill and Di Stapleton. Every shift, a ratings winner. What do you think was the magic formula that made it so successful? Oh, they just hired good people, I think. Yeah. Yeah, pretty simple when you think about it. Now, were you around when Baz and Pilko defected to 5KA? And if so, what effect did that have on the station overall? Well, gee, the... Of course, the breakfast audience went way down. They all went over to Baz and Pilko again. And, uh, yeah, it was quite a hole in their uh, audience, yeah. So was the station able to pick up that audience again somewhere along the line? Not really. Not until they changed formats sometime later. And then it went back to number one. FM radio came along, and that made a big difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, SAFM took over from uh, 5AD at that time, towards the end of my time there. and. They changed format 5AD and then went back to number one. Now, there's no doubt that Tassie made a strong impression on you in the early 60s because you always seemed to gravitate back there, especially to 70X. What was the attraction each time? Well, I just got offered a job there, you know. <laughs> yeah, good job offers, always attractive. So how sad was it for both the station and the city of Launceston in January 93 when 70X closed its doors was sold off to racing. Oh, that was very sad. Pretty sad for the, the people of Launceston, really, because they really loved the station and they'd grown up with it. There was the Basin concert we used to put on every year, which was a big event, and 
you know, 70X that people had grown up with it and then all of a sudden it was finished. Yeah, it was sad. So as well as killing it on the Australian airwaves, you also had some pretty good exposure in the US as well. Yeah, no, I did a show for American uh, radio syndicate called Rock Down Under. It was when Australian music really started to bloom, around the time of uh, In Excess just starting out and around that era. And yeah, I used to do this Rock Down Under and play Australian music because that's when Australia sort of became a bit of a favourite with Americans. We're just trying to think of the theme song we used. Out on the patio, you do. What's that song? I did, I did a bilingual program too with a French guy and it was broadcast in France. Once again, sort of highlighting Australian music. So I, I would speak in English and then he'd follow me up with his French. But of course, a lot of French people do understand it, English to a certain extent anyway. So, yeah, I was uh, Sam Gugal. We dropped the Anglesey because Anglo, meaning with French, would sound like English. And the French don't like the English, let's face it. So we decided to go Sam Google. Okay, Sam, speaking of names, is your middle name really Aloysius? No, where did you get that from? Well, I'm sure either you or someone on air would continually refer to you as Samuel Aloysius Anglesey. Did I? Not all the time. Okay, I'm sure our listening audience will confirm or reject that little piece of research of mine. Hey, listen, one thing I do know about you is that you are a cricket tragic and a cricket umpire of some note. So who would you give the benefit of doubt to? The batsman or the bowler? Oh, I see. Uh, well, naturally, you, you give it to the batsman. So what were you yourself, a batsman or a bowler? I was an all-rounder. Uh, I have a real passion for the game. I really love it. That's why I became an umpire when I retired. And uh, went pretty well. And after 12 months, I made it to A-grade. And that was a real task, umpiring A-grade cricket. You, you were really in the kitchen under the heat umpiring an A-grade cricket match. It was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I got umpire of the year one year too. <laughs> See my blowing my trumpet to you, Paul? Absolutely. Blow it as loud as you like. Listen, last question. When will Carlton win their next premiership? How long's a piece of string, Paul? <laughs> Doesn't look like it's in the immediate future, I'm afraid. Yeah. You'll drive home with lap tomorrow, 4 through to 7 o'clock. And Stan wrote tonight at 10. In the meantime, you're stuck with Sammy. <laughs> Come on, baby, let me light your fire. Hmm? Or if you're real game, maybe you'll just reach out. Go on, reach out and touch your radio set. That's it. Just touch it, touch it. <laughs> Get the feeling coming through. You're going to set the night on fire with a little flamenco guitar here. And Jose Feliciano. Yeah, just a sample of the fine, very laid-back work of our guest today, Sam Anglesey. And Sam, got a dozen or so questions to fire at you. First one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Um, actually, that would have been when I just got the offer to go to 5AD. Oh, yeah, John Lennon's died and now I'm off to 5AD. The last concert ticket you paid for, Sam? That would have been to see my daughter, Emma. She was supporting Katie Noonan at the Princess Theatre. Hey, tell us a little bit about Emma. Well, gee, I'm pretty biased, Paul, but uh, she's a wonderful talent, really. Uh, she's got a, a band now as the Runaway Bells. 
and uh, they're great. Yeah, no, she was solo previous to that, and uh, oh, she played all over the place. Um, the folk festival, yeah, Woodford. Well, they do say, Sam, that the creative apple never falls far from the tree. Speaking of concerts, a concert act that you regret never seeing. I don't have one, Paul. Oh, maybe Marvin Gaye would have liked to have seen him. I was a bit blasé about all that after a while because you went, you know, you, I saw so many concerts. I ended up going to concerts and not even watching them, just hanging in the bar with all the uh, the roadies and the <laughs> and the backups. Mm, as you do, a word that Sam Anglesey had most trouble pronouncing on air. Oh dear! Uh, oh yes, I know what it was. Phenomenon. <laughs> Phenomenon. <laughs> See, I can't even pronounce it now. No, no, I've got a mental block with that word for some reason. It's strange, isn't it? Yep, and I won't even try it myself. Hey, listen, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't come Monday orders? Uh, no, I reckon I might have had a few off air that may have, may have had a don't come Monday attached to it, but not on air. Skyhooks or Sherbet? Oh, Skyhooks, of course. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Oh, Stones, not the Beatles. I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm not a great Beatles fan. Sgt. Pepper's was a great album, but that was more an album by uh, their producer, I think. Wow. The most treasured piece of memorabilia from those early radio days, Sam? Paul, I don't have any. I don't have any. Do you actually regret that? Oh, probably maybe only for my kin, my children maybe, and grandchildren, and my uh, great-grandchild who's about to come along. I'm going to be a great-granddad, Paul. Hey, congratulations, Sam. That is a big news story. Speaking of which, can you recall the biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Ooh, there was a few. Um, Oh, Harold Holt, when he went missing at uh, Portsea. And, uh, oh, um, when uh, JFK was shot, I was on air when that happened too. You went, oh, gee, here's big news. Is there a moment that someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? No, there wasn't, Paul, no. I was, I was probably too just concentrating on the job at hand, you know, the interview and rather than the personality. Maybe Dolly Parton. I ran into Dolly Parton, but that was socially, not on air. Because if you meet them on air, you're not really thinking about them as a person. You're thinking about what you're going to ask them and how you're going to run the interview, you know, rather than the person themselves. Dolly Parton, I remember meeting her in her caravan, just the two of us. She said, oh, come on. I was comparing uh, a show in Adelaide and it was her and Kenny Rogers. And Kenny was on stage and she was backstage. So I had a chat with her in a caravan. She was great. Beautiful woman. Lovely personality. Great songwriter and a great performer. Yeah. Underestimated, I think. Okay, Sam, can you recall those best words of advice from a program manager? I didn't get any. (laughs) In fact... Uh, yeah, well, most of the program managers have, were failed disc jockeys. <laughs> Peter Butler was good, mm-hmm. j- just as a program uh, director. Not that he gave me any great advice, you know, because I'd been in radio longer than they had been, you know. And finally, Sam, two of your favourite albums that might still get a run even today. Oh, gee. Uh, probably Marvin Gaye, What's Going On? Better do one for the girls. Uh, Oh, Joni Mitchell. I love Joni. Uh, what about... Oh, Blue. Yeah, Joni Mitchell's Blue. Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Love what's, that. 
It's funny enough, that's, that song is appropriate for the times today as it was when it was released way back the way the world is today, you know, what's going on. Great song. Yes, indeed. Great song and great memories all round. Hey, Sam, I know you're enjoying the good life these days down in Tassie. Plenty of family to keep you busy. Just hope that they realise that when you sit and read them a bedtime story, that it's being read by not only their grandfather or great-grandfather, but a legend of Australian radio whose name still brings a smile to so many people. Hey, listen, thanks for joining us today on Pilots. No, it's lovely to talk to you, mate, and you're doing a good thing there. And all the best to you, Pilots of the Airways. The great Sam Anglesey on Pilots of the Airwaves. Good one, buddy. I wish I could reach out and shake your hand. Yeah, let's do it in person after that next Carlton Premiership, eh, Sam? Sam.